Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. Continuing with the month's theme of It Came From Shudder, in which a guest picks a movie from Shudder's extensive back catalog that is lesser known or perhaps doesn't get quite the love it deserves. And this week, my guests and I are chatting about Christian Taftrup's family-friendly film Speak No Evil in which a Danish family accepts the invitation to stay with the Dutch family that they met on holiday. But what should be an idyllic weekend quickly unravels into polite awkwardness that then evolves into something else entirely. And joining me this week to test the boundaries of politeness is my UK podcaster brother-in-arms and the co-host of Blade Disgusting's horror video game podcast safe room, Mr. Neil Bolt. Welcome back to the show, man. Hello, good to be back. And uh, familiar but unfamiliar surroundings. Well, it's always nice having a chance to, you know, pick your brain about horror movies as well. You know, we spend so much time chatting about games that, you know, it's almost like I wish I had more time to talk about movies because our taste, it seems, (laughs) is cut from the same cloth. But I'm excited to chat about the movie you brought to me today, one that I hadn't really heard of, I think, until you had mentioned that you had seen it. And it was uh, definitely a standout, which we will uh, will get to the bottom of. But I guess in starting with Speak No Evil – what was it about this movie that kind of jumped out to you from the other offerings on Shudder? Was it the poster? Was it the premise? Was it maybe the types of subgenres it dabbled in? Yeah, I mean, it sounded like a, a slow burn, social awkwardness horror, which is, you know, hor- that is horrific in itself. So, um, seeing, not knowing the extent it would go to, but still, I thought, yeah, no, that's a cool premise. I didn't know quite where it would go in terms of how bleak it would end up and how darkly comedic but yeah it just one of those things that you took I took a hit on and tried it and the more I watched it more I thought god this is awful in terms of like you know what's going on in it but at the same time thinking this is very much on my way having this really darkly comic you know horror brutal horror about you know, the, the limits of politeness, yeah, basically. <laughs> and, you know, the only horror movie that, I, that made me instantly think of a quote from Austin Bowers, you know, <laughs> which was uh, in Gulp when Michael Caine says in the third one that, you know, there are only two things I can't stand in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures in the Dutch. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty perfect for this it movie. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, doesn't take much for that for gold member to get stuck in my head with anything. So, um, yeah, it, it was obviously going to be the first thing that came to mind when, when it was proven that the Dutch cannot be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> well, this movie made me think of uh, Coming Home in the Dark, which came out. I either you know blame it on COVID brain. It was either this year or the year before last. Mm. Um, and the only thing that I compared, speak no evil to that was just the imagery of a family in a station wagon and then they encounter some type of person that's essentially this malevolent evil force. Um, And all I could think about was just like, oh no, another movie where a family is thrown through the ringer. But, you know, I think that I prefer the approach to something like Speak No Evil Mm. that largely concerns itself not so much with, you know, the more overt 
uh, horror that they will, you know, encounter in the later half of the film, but one that, you know, is unsettling and uncomfortable to watch throughout the entirety of it. You know, before we even get into the general nastiness at the end of the movie, um, that is a quality of horror films that I love more than anything. Ones that I'm uncomfortable to watch, but it's not just based on the reaction of like seeing something gruesome or horrific. It's more about the smaller interactions, mm -hmm. kind of like you mentioned, right? The awkwardness of a social interaction with people that you don't really quite know. Um, you know, I think about in my own life now, that being related to like weddings or something like that, or engagement parties where I'm the first one to show up out of my initial friends group. And then I'm left <laughs> to kind of just mingle with a group of people that are perfectly nice. It's just me being awkward. Yeah. I'm just like, oh God, what are we going to talk about past, you know, work? Who are you dating? Are, do you have kids or not? And then past that, I'm kind of like in, <laughs> in free water basically. And just kind of like trying to stay afloat. Uh, something that this movie, I think, capitalizes on in a really smart way. Um, but I was really interested to learn that like the entire premise of this movie stemmed from the director having a similar situation, mm. not quite to the extent the movie goes, but meeting people on vacation that are, you know, falling over themselves to be nice. And then he essentially says like, yeah, they tried to invite him to come visit them to stay with them. And he declined because, you know, that's kind of a, a, a mad <laughs> offer, right? Of people that you barely know are like, hey, come live with us for a weekend, uh, which, you know, I'm sure they had good intentions. But he talked about the idea of not being able to stop kind of fantasizing about what kind of horrific things could happen yeah. in staying with people that you don't actually know. And how, you know, once you get past a potential facade of just over politeness or just people being falling over themselves to be nice, like, what are they really like behind closed doors? Uh, and that's a concept that, you know, I think in our modern age is one that uh, everybody kind of has lingering in the back of their mind are people that you encounter as forthcoming of who they actually are, mm. as who they, you know, present themselves to be. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's quite key here is um, the, the Danish couple, uh, Bjorn and Louise, uh, clearly at the point in the you know, married life where they, they've had kids, everything's very samey. They don't, you know, fine, competent, happy, but they don't know they're seeking something a bit more exciting. Well, Bjorn doesn't until he meets, you know, Patrick. And suddenly it's like he's found his midlife crisis, effectively. You know, it's like, oh, here's the man. Oh, this we could be cool again. We could have cool friends and like that. And he kind of wants it to be true. And he, that's why he kind of pushes for them to do it. And clearly, as you learn, that people like Patrick end up, you know, what Patrick is, preys on people like this who have that sort of vulnerability as a family. And all through this film, Whenever you're thinking, why doesn't Bjorn see that what's going on here? Really, why doesn't he accept that there is something really fucked up about this situation? And it's all because it's a very man-centric thing of being too proud to say that I was wrong. I introduced us to some weird fucking people here, so, like that. He yeah. wants, he just, yeah, he wants to be right. He wants it to be right. And just no, you know, you, I'm just trying to be reasonable, trying to think the logic behind this. And again, Patrick preys on that very well by making it seem, you know, by coming up with those excuses that are just good enough that you could say, okay, yeah, maybe I am being stupid. Maybe I am just you know, being intolerant of other people's cultures here. But um, yeah, it, and that seems to be the get, get the thing the whole way through that adds this horrible dread tension of like, oh God, you, you're getting away. You're almost away. 
almost by accepting that this is an outrageous thing to do or say, and then they get dragged back and they get dragged back again and again and again by that. And it's oh, that that's horrifying to escape capture when you're not really realizing you are caught, you know, um, again and again. So taking that very traditional idea of you know the, the captive uh, captive being you know trying to escape uh, the, the kidnapper and just getting caught and taken back every time but it's like done in this very psychological way you know it's um it, it brings to mind was it the you know the, the frog in the pot that's slowly boiling you know it's like quite doesn't quite realize it until it's too late sort of thing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah it, it is just ratchets up to an intensity that you think god yeah i mean this is only going to go one way and it, you know i, I when I watched it initially, I said, you know, it's all the familiar pieces are there, but in an order that makes it just you know, interesting enough to make it a really compelling and nice watch because that's the idea. You you know the car crash of it all is coming, even if you don't know exactly how, and you're just screaming at them internally for them to get out of this situation. Because it's, it's like, you know, we know what we're watching here. We know that this is what genre this is in. We, we mm. know that something is going to happen. It's like, it's like, they can't be trusted. Someone here can't be trusted. And it's clearly them. So, you know. <laughs> and yeah, it, it just, it's unnerving. And I think it definitely adds something if, you, if you're a parent, you know, with this, um, the idea of anyone trying to sort of mold themselves as, the, the protector and carer of your own children would be very disturbing to say the least yeah and as some, you know somebody like myself that doesn't have kids the fact that that element of the film is made so palatable mm. but at the same time you know stomach churning i thought that that was some that was something i was not expecting right is that you know a great deal of the time when the films focus on parents it's like sure i'm gonna have a surface level sort of take on what this might a parent might experience in this kind of situation but this film the way that it builds and it's not immediately sort of just overtly placing the children in danger right it starts with one of those interactions where it is almost like a microaggression yeah. but at the same time it and I'll elaborate on a little bit more before I uh, I want to ask you a question before we kind of dive into that section of the film but I think it's a great example of the fact that this movie is paced in a way that you know sure there are minor red flags early on, but there's nothing. The film doesn't front load anything so overtly worrisome mm. that they would immediately, you know, rip that uh, ejector cord, yeah. if you will. And I think that that's a quality of a filmmaker that I'm really appreciative of. The fact that sometimes I find that with filmmakers, especially genre filmmakers, which it's important to note, uh, this director, this is his first foray into horror. Um, largely, I find that filmmakers that attempt something similarly. They have a tendency to get almost a little too excited yeah. to get to the horror aspect. So, you know, within the first 20 minutes, a character is faced with something that is on they can't explain away, which then at that point, it's like, well, how is this story going to go past that moment? Exactly. But in Speak No Evil, it does a really great job, I found, of just pacing things out um, and not even just in the traditional sense of like, okay, some build up, a little bit of understanding of what's going on or an allusion to what's going on and then continuing. But just overall, you know, they do a great job of paying attention to the kitchen sink aspects like you mentioned, mm -hmm. right? You get to see Bjorn who he never has a moment in the first half of the movie where he says like, oh, I'm fed up with everything or I'm sick of, you know, kind of leading a mundane mm -hmm. life. 
we're shown that instead, right? You get those two really great interactions when they go to see their daughter perform in a play and he kind of just almost looks like he's uh, detached mm. from reality in, in a little way. Or, you know, I think the other example is they have uh, people over for dinner, right? And he just is completely uninterested in what's going on. There's this person pouring a wine and talking to him, you know, not not two feet away. Yeah. And he's just like staring out the window. Um, and, you know, little moments like that, I find are effective in, you know, saying what needs to be said, but not having to have a great deal of, you know, drawn out kitchen sink moments, if you will. Um, because for a movie that's almost two hours, you know, with the exception of maybe that final act, I found this to be incredibly brisk considering, mm. again, like I mentioned, we don't have a lot of those big in your face moments where it's like, okay, they have to get out now. This yeah. is undeniable that they are in danger. But something that you mentioned a few moments ago that I want to come back to is mentioning that some parts of Speak No Evil or most of the parts are generally pretty familiar to other films that we've seen, yeah. but it's more about the order in which they're constructed. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. I'm interested, you know, how that construction worked for you uh, in a way that maybe it didn't for other films that try to do something similar to this. Yeah, so like the very basic structure of it is like people unhappy with something in their life going to seek out something more risque and it all going wrong you know that's been done plenty of times and you know the outcome is always it goes wrong um the difference and the variable usually is like where do they come out at the end of it you know and uh the other side of it is this um you know the interpersonal relationships and how they define where that horror goes i mean it's while it's not horror um the swedish uh, film force majeure by ruben Ostlin. Um, which is about um, basically a hypothetical question your partner asks you about what would you do in this situation, the movie. And the idea you're hoping you'd never find out, like in this, um, that it's an avalanche happens while they're skiing the Swiss Alps and the father freaks out during that and basically leaves his family to die. But of course, oh, nobody di nobody <laughs> dies, and they have to continue right. with the rest of their holiday with this sort of over this crippling shame and the tension that it brings up, and it is horrific in its own sense. And there are aspects of that here, you know, where you have this sort of biting sort of tension going on, where it's like, like I was saying earlier, you know, where Bjorn is basically not accepting that maybe he's made a mistake, and uh, basically, you know, telling Louise that she's being silly and even when it starts to become very obvious, you know, and I don't know. And the fact that by the time they get through it, all, it's also too late, you know, to do anything about it is, is awful. Um, but yeah, I suppose, like I said, the, the fact that it is like the kidnapper captive sort of dynamic that again, we've seen in many horror movies, you know, get away, get away, get away, come back into the, the, the uh, spider's web, so to speak. But like I said, the good thing about it here is it's done in that way that you aren't being, you know, have it, you know, hit in your face with it. It's basically, it's just, you know, pulling a rope back in quietly and you don't even know you've been pulled back in. Um, and doing it through the means of social awkwardness is just a really smart move. You know, and it just, tonally, the whole thing works so well when it does that because it just never stops um, bringing it back to this very personal sort of sense of horror, which is that you know you you have conversations with people you don't know, and getting introduced to strangers gets 
more and more intimidating the older you get in many ways because you want every person you meet to be cool and maybe you get new friends but it doesn't work like that because people grow older and very distant and very driven in what views they have and what way they live um, <laughs> i mean you're not necessarily going to find people as like this which is uh quite a relief <laughs> you hope that <laughs> yeah. and you hope that you'd be a bit better off but yeah that goes back to what i was saying about force majeure the the idea that in a hypothetical situation is like would we get out of here you know, if this situation came up and you think well you'd like to think you would but then you look at this situation where they're going you keep thinking, yeah I, I can kind of see why they're not quite bailing when they should and you know there's one instance where they really would have bailed and got out of it scot-free but that was anticipated and i loved that about it it was just to see how helpless they were before they ever realized how helpless they were um which isn't really the norm you know like normally it's um presented as oh you have no hope to escape but then you know some sort of act you know deus ex machina thing happens and someone escapes from whatever the situation is and here it's like, no, no, it just goes to the very natural, depressing conclusion. Um, in that sense, the, the other films I thought of here were Darren Aronofsky's Mother, you know, where that sort of escalating, like, weird social situations. I know that's more of an allegory, but it still happens in that film where it's like, what the fuck? Why are these people doing this? Why are they get, getting allowed to do this? And, you know, Javier Bardem's characters it's alright, it's alright, it's alright, like that you, you, and everything's okay, don't worry about all this shit happening and the other is obviously um, Michael Hanke's uh, fun, Funny Games you know, where there's this sort of ominous dread throughout it where you, you just feel that it's not going to be structured like a normal horror movie structure of yeah, they'll be fine, everything's going to work out they're, they're going to have to go through a lot of pain and then they'll triumph through adversity and no, it's not happening it's um it really, as darkly comic as it gets, the you know, the last 20 minutes or so are just like fucking hell. You know, <laughs> they, are, <laughs> they, are, they are upsetting to say the least. Yeah. I was teasing you on Twitter while I was watching the movie about just like, oh, thanks, Neil ruined my Sunday with this one because it goes to some dark places. Um, but, you know, I think that and without, you know, unpacking the ending quite yet, I do think that it's the type of film that if it was not so successful at what it does for the first three-fourths of its runtime, that ending doesn't feel uh, – satisfying might be the wrong way to put it, but it doesn't feel as earned, yeah. if you will, right? I think that if this film was not as expertly crafted as it was for the first three-fourths, then you get to that ending and it's like, okay, you just want to upset us, but we kind of already knew – I'm probably not explaining it right, but I feel like the way in which – so much of the social awkwardness is handled. Mm. There is a, it creates the illusion of doubt that, oh, this could maybe not end up the way we think it's going yeah. to, even if, you know, of course, we know that uh, it's going to end in only one way. But I'm at least appreciative of the fact that they present the conversations and the interactions with just like a sliver of hope in the back of your mind that maybe this is just all a misunderstanding. Um, and I really like the concept of, you know, potentially something being miscommunicated through cultural differences, right? Because there's that first time that they're eating together in Italy, the two families, and I believe it's Louise who says that their cultures are exactly alike. She says something like that, which then gets a reaction out of Patrick, who's like, oh, really? You think that? And then, you know, it's not something that they come back to 
throughout the film. But that little seed in the back of my mind to a certain point in the film, of course, because yeah. no matter what kind of cultural differences there are, the film, of course, reaches a point where it's like, well, nothing excuses that. Yeah. But I think early on, just that little kind of seed that's planted, the idea of, well, maybe these cultures are not all that similar or they're being conflated by one party and the other is maybe offended by that or something. You know, as me as an American, like, of course, again, there's going to be things that characters do that could never be explained or excused. But I think in the smaller moments early on, it does create a sense of doubt of like, oh, maybe this is just how things are done in this other culture. Again, I'm ignorant of that because I'm not familiar mm. with the, both of the cultures. But, you know, overall, I liked that that little bit of dialogue, you know, got me through half of the film before I was kind of like convinced, okay, the illusion has basically been uh, dispelled in the sense that, you know, this is only going to end one way. But I just like that there is the presentation of things that are occurring that it's like, oh, well, perhaps this is just customary or something mm. like that. I think about, you know, when Luis reveals them early on that she's vegetarian. What's the first thing Patrick does is he wants her to take a bite of this roast that he's making, <laughs> which is very uncomfortable. And even Bjorn kind of pressures her into taking a bite of it. Um, and it was the type of thing where I was thinking, well, you know, maybe he's doing that purposefully to, you know, obviously upset her uh, and to begin that sort of slow form torture uh, that he wants yeah, to enact on her. Gaslighting her throughout, basically. Yeah, exa <laughs> exactly. Yeah, gaslighting her. Or perhaps it is a cultural thing where it's like, well, this is just how we do things. It's a sign of respect, maybe. You have to try a piece of this because this is made for you. We're honoring guests in our home. Um, again, the film is going to go in places that that sort of, uh, <laughs> that sort of <laughs> pretense of, you have to do it. You're our guests, of course, is going to be pushed to the wayside. But I at least was appreciative of the fact that he does present this idea of like, maybe a lot of this that's happening is just being misinterpreted because nobody wants to take a moment to be like, hey, can you explain what just happened in the moment? But then again, there might not be a movie if uh, <laughs> if that's the approach for too long. Yeah, but I mean, it's all really relevant because it happens all the time in society where people will misunderstand things and you, know, you can walk that stuff back if you can go well hang on you know this is what i meant by that it's like unless you're you're the dregs of social media you're not going to be turning and going and just screeching ah oh, you're so wrong you did all this wrong like that <laughs> like that right. um yeah that, that's where you know in normal life that tends to work that way uh but um i suppose it just there's a moment as you say where it becomes very clear that it's no longer the pretense is no longer there and yet Patrick and his wife are still just putting up that pretense in such absurd manners, you know, where I think it was when they, they pretty much just, you know, shriekishly object to the idea. It's like, wow, what's wrong? You know, just because we're doing things a little differently. It's like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you're with them, with Louise though. And she's basically like, it's not, it's not wrong. It's wrong. You know, what you're doing is wrong. It's not, it's not about different. It's wrong. And that's it. And that's where, the tables absolutely just sort of turn on the whole thing. And, oh, yeah, it's just lovely that it gets to that moment. And I just think, I have to point out as well that the toying with them, you know, that goes on throughout, um, you know, when Patrick takes Bjorn to the quarry earlier on in the film, like that, and you see it later in the context of that. It's like, it's brutal and callous and mean that he's basically teasing him with that, that but um yeah it, it's just the best thing about that point though is it stops becoming about 
are they? And it starts with, it's more about why are they? You know, and that in itself then is the central thing of like why. And maybe like, you know, some of the best examples of horror, you know, like this. It's not always clear why they're doing it. You know, it despite getting the revelations you do at the end of the film, it's never really given out that why they're doing this, you know. They're just doing it. And they've done it before and they're doing it again and again and again. And that's that in itself is grim and powerful. Think of like the strangers, you know, that that it's often revered for that line near the end. It's like why why did you do this to us? Yeah, you know, it's like because you were home. Like that, no reason like that. And, you know, without saying those words, it's pretty much like, you know, we saw you, you fit the bill. That was it. It, it, it. That's that's the problem they've got here. Yeah, brilliant in that regard. Well, it's a movie, too, that, you know, as soon as I was done watching it, it was stuck in my brain, not only because of, you know, how shocking and upsetting the ending is, but just because I'm playing back the entire movie mm. now with what I know and picking up on little bits, right? I think that uh, in, to talk any longer without giving praise to uh, Fedja Van Hoot, um, who plays Patrick, oh, and I hope I pronounced yeah. that correctly. Uh, he is simply fantastic, right? And, you know, it's a performance that early on, again, you kind of are like, okay, he's a little too overly friendly. But then the further removed I get from that beginning section in Italy, when they're on holiday and meeting them, I start thinking about every key interaction that Patrick has specifically with Bjorn, right? And how you know, the first interaction of the film is that he comes over and he asks Bjorn, oh, can I use this chair at the pool, which is next, right next to him? And, you know, there's plenty of other chairs that are open. But yeah. Bjorn, of course, uh, he's, he looks a little annoyed, but then he's like, sure, not a problem, moves all of his things. And right there, it's kind of like, oh, he was the mark. And he found him out through that one little interaction that I can be a nuisance purposefully, uh, which, you know, even if Bjorn, of course, doesn't know his intentions – somebody that comes over out of their way to like interject into your space like that, like is a little, might be a little bit of a dickhead considering there's all these <laughs> other chairs and whatnot, but you know, those little moments add up later when they go and they see that performance in the villa where this woman singing the equivalent of opera. Right. And Bu- uh, Patrick looks over and Bjorn is crying during the performance, you know, not to make a, a personal judgment on a character that does that during music. Like every, people get emotional about different things, but in Patrick's case, he's going to latch on to the fact mm. that, oh, this guy that I can kind of, you know, insert my will onto uh, is not only this, but he's also emotional and he's willing to be vulnerable in front of other people, which then Patrick himself is making sort of a uh, a judgment on him being like, oh, well, he's soft. And so that's somebody that furthermore, I can push further than I could maybe some other man in this audience that's sitting there and enjoying the music, but is not having such a viscerally emotional reaction to it. Yeah. I mean- you know, I said about uh, the, there's no given reason for why they're doing what they're doing. But when you do go into that sort of side of it, you start to feel like it's, you know, um, Patrick and Karen saying, it's like, well, you don't deserve what you have. Uh, look at you. Look at the way you are. Uh, it's, this is us. We're the ones living free, being all like out there and doing all this stuff. Uh, you know, we deserve that, you know, and... You know, it's basically the way it ends up being. And yeah, I I, I think that's an interesting way to look at it. I think also um, you got to give 
props to the the woman uh, Karina Smolders who plays Karen, yeah. who plays Patrick's wife, who apparently the two of them are married in real life. Yeah. <laughs> which I wonder, you know, how much that had to do with them being so in sync with one another's performance. Because you know, it, not to I guess put down a performance, but you know, her character doesn't necessarily have as much of a stamp on their interactions as Patrick, mm. right? Because Patrick is this force that uh, is really like unknowing, unknowable from moment to moment. You really don't know how he's going to interact and the ebbs and flows to his temper yeah. flare up in just like a moment's notice. I mean, early on, there's that instance where their you know, supposed child is blocking the slide so Bjorn and Luis's child can't use it. And Luis asks Patrick, could you ask Abel to move? And then immediately... He turns around and you just see this look on his yeah. face that's not rage, but it is something that you haven't seen him, yeah. you know, port- reflective of his temper yet in the film. Um, and just seeing, you know, he goes over and he grabs him by the scruff of the neck and he starts talking to him sternly. And, you know, it's worrisome seeing that behavior. But still, again, like the film is restrained to the point that you don't immediately see the full extent of his temper, because if you do, all of a sudden it's like, well, that's not a guy that I would want my child around. But it's presented in a way that I found that it could potentially be a thing that is lost in translation a little bit where it's like, well, maybe this in this culture, parenting is a little more stern or strict. Again, it's an instance where that depiction of it is not so over the top that you would be like, well, this is worrisome. We can't be around them. It does take pause though, right? It's like, oh, he's got the kid by the scruff of his shirt and he's talking to him sternly in a way that they don't talk to their own child. But again, it's done so in a way that it's noticeable, but not setting off all the alarm bells, mm-hmm. if you will, in a way that, again, it could be this lost in translation type of a thing. Yeah. I mean, they say from the outset, oh, our son has this disease, which you know, means his tongue hasn't fully formed and he can't speak properly. And again, that kind of preys on the sympathetic side of Bjorn and Louise. You know, it's like... That yes, they may get angry at their son, but you can almost internalize it if you're thinking about it. It's like, okay, so maybe it's a very stressful thing for them to have to deal with this child with a disability and they don't know how to handle it emotionally sometimes. And maybe that's why they're like, this is the, the thing is that it's worked so well is it's constantly having these little moments that if you were just had no information, you would go, that's a bit off. No, 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 that's off. You shouldn't do that. Um, and so they get away with it a bit more because here it's like, you know, the context is there. It's like, oh, this kid has a disability. Maybe he doesn't communicate as well. We don't know the full extent of this. Is, we don't understand what that's about. And they do, and they've had to live with it. So maybe that, yeah, that's the way they're thinking. And yeah, it, until the point where the, it gets pushed further and further. And it's like, no, no, come on. There's a limit to what you can do to a child here with this. You can't just, you know, Yes, frustrations are one thing, but you can't go going like this. Um, and yeah, again, that comes to that key point, you know, where it's just where the veil basically goes without you mm. know being having the full revelation. But yeah, it's um, you know, it ends up of course being very important to the story of what's going on anyway, and um, you know, and the, the uh, cause of the upsetting scene in question. <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so it's uh, it's something to look back on as well. Again, as you were saying, you know, so much to look back on, but that whole mute child thing and the way they handled that again, it's just, oh, let, just it's just why it really 
impressed me. It's just these little things that you can come back to and go, wow, yeah, that 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 was really well thought out. That's really really well structured. And I know you're always going to get the criticism that some people will look at it and go, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, I wouldn't do that. It's like, well, that's the point. It depends on your situation, on who you are as a person. But I guarantee you there are going to be people like that. And, you know, Bjorn has been chosen specifically because he is that kind of, I wouldn't say boo to a goose, you know, un- <laughs> secretly unhappy person who's being given the right cues to, you know, have this midlife crisis, as I said, if you will. And um, be too introverted and ashamed of you know, being wrong to really see you know, the danger before it's really, really there. You know, I wasn't very taken with uh, Bjorn as a character or his performance, except for that quarry scene, right? That quarry scene is incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, it's pretty heartbreaking to see somebody, you know, finally be able to, you know, express how they've probably felt for a handful of years, if not longer, right? And to get to see somebody, you know, reveal things that they themselves, it seems, would never say to their partner or is so introverted that they've just accepted this life or this path that they are not completely themselves sold with, right? I think he says at one point something along the lines of like, I'm so tired of smiling all the time, right? Which is a pretty like heartbreaking and very human line, this idea that you know, oh, well, uh, this has just been my life and I'm in this path or on this track and this is just going to be my ride until the end. Um, And, you know, there's something very humanizing about that. And then at the same time, you know, the second part of that interaction with Patrick, where he takes him to the edge of the sand dunes by the water and then they start, you know, screaming into the wind, basically. But just even the way that that scene is captured in that it pulls out so you can see them at the dunes and he's clearly screaming his lungs out, but it's muffled. It's not that full sort of, you know, just roar, primal roar. Mm. It's almost kind of like the uh, that scene of Furiosa in Fury Road, right? When she kind of falls to her knees in the dunes and releases all of this anguish. And I think in this film, it's the right decision to not, you know, allow to have that guttural screaming. You know, it might be for a moment before it kind of fades out just because then it kind of is in keeping with overall the pacing of the film, I think. Yeah. Uh, the fact that, you know, you can't have this sort of crescendo of sound other than the score, because at that point, then it's kind of like, oh, maybe things are starting to ratchet up. When in reality, that scene, that excess of, you know, him kind of like being able to release, I think he calls it his animalistic side. Yeah. If that scene is too pronounced, then it kind of is an indicator that, okay, things are coming to a head. When in reality, they're not for, you know, the next couple of uh, of uh, chapters, if you will. Yeah. But I wanted to come back to Karen and, you know, Karina's performance in that when she plays off against Patrick, and it's probably the best scene, in, one of the best scenes in the movie I found, when, you know, Bjorn and Luis are like, well, this is the, this is it. We've reached our limit, right? And I think that that was when not only does Bjorn see Patrick watching them have sex, but then they can't find their daughter and their daughter is in bed with uh, Patrick and Karen, right? Which is an incredibly upsetting Yeah, I mean, like um, Patrick scene. is I mean, drunk and naked next to their daughter, which is just it, the anger you would feel in that is it, just unrelenting. You know? And it, clearly, I don't know, the way Patrick is, you then begin to doubt if he was ever drunk you know, as much as he puts on. You know, which is um, especially given the way things turn out. So, yeah, it's uh, 
just horrendous in itself, you know, and you, you can get why they go there. And the fact that it still isn't enough, you know, it just, it is crazy. You know, it's crazy. Well, before I uh, continue with that bit, I have, to, I have to take a step back. The scene when they're promised like this lovely dinner night out mm. on the town, they're going to go to the best restaurant in the area. And as they're leaving, there's just some random guy that shows up. And Karen's like, well, yeah, that's uh, so-and-so. He's going to watch the kids. And she's like, what? <laughs> and just that that concept I found to be so stomach-churning, even yeah. with somebody that's not a parent. The idea that somebody would spring that on you and the fact that they just go along with it, yeah. right? The idea that some random man that you don't know is going to be in charge of your child. <laughs> like That's such a, mind, a maddening concept that I was just like, it was like, nails on a chalkboard for me yeah yeah it's like again it comes back to the whole idea of bjorn trying to reason with the idea that oh well you know i think they're good so they've got to be good so i've got to trust it because if i don't i'm walking back what i think and you know yeah it, it just just seemed mad it's like i could see where the anger would come from that you would go okay fine but at the same time, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's you know a very famous case in this country of Madeleine McCann. You know, her parents just leaving, being away from her a, a short distance on holiday and her going missing. And, you know, the whole thing that they've been dragging that case up for many, many years and how very weirdly guilty that makes them look because of um, how much money and media they've got invested in that crime when there are people who would you know, on, who don't have that kind of money to do that. And it's just, you always go back to the question of like, why would you leave a child that young alone on holiday in a place you don't know whilst you're drinking? You know, and it's like, um, you know, there's an element of that here. And I suppose this is where you can look at the Bjorn and Louise and go, it makes it harder to be sympathetic for them. And it's like, but then... I think the whole thing of it is there's no one way to do parenting and there's always going to be decisions you make that you will regret or you will not think through and then you will think afterwards that was a bad idea. In the same, you know, you can go the other way and be like, oh, being too hands-on, too protective and that can have a damaging effect. But yeah, when you do reckless things like this in search of, I suppose self-fulfillment, I think, is the best way to see it. They, they are thinking, well, we get to have a night out and reclaim some of that happy holiday time we had without the kids. And, you know, I suppose, as you said, when it gets down to it, that's not what they get either. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, the, the, the great restaurant and the night out they promised is, yeah, a, a, another step in this really awkward and disturbing story they are, they are embarking on. It, a, uh, a high-priced meal at like a roadside <laughs> inn that then they have to pay for themselves even though they were invited mm. out to dinner, which I just love because everybody has that awkward interaction when you're with eating other people with your when you are eating with other people where it's like oh who's gonna pay who's gonna pay yeah. especially if you don't really know the person if you know whether it's a date or it's like a work thing it's kind of like this awkward game that you have to play yeah. um, and the fact that it's not even about just splitting the bill it's just oh this one's on them yeah. So then they have to pay for this meal that they were invited to, which is just like, I think everybody can relate yeah, to it at uh, some point. But uh, the moment that I wanted to highlight with Karen and Patrick, where they really are this effective tag team, if you will, is when, you know, Bjorn and Luis are trying to leave. 
And then they come back because they want to find their daughter's toy rabbit that she left. But of course, the girl already had it. So there was no reason for them to return back to the spider web, as you said. Um, but I just love the back and forth because Patrick and Karen are able to disarm their worries and kind of like almost turn the table on them and themselves mm. where, you know, Bjorn and Luis are saying how uncomfortable they were. And then Karen and Patrick turn it right back around on them where they said, well, why our daughter was in your bed? And she said, well, she was crying. And there was nobody there to take care of her. Where were you? Where were fully, you? She yeah, keeps fully knowing that. where they were and what they were doing at the time. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, just preying on, you know, almost like a mother's duty, right? Yeah. Just to always be there for a child. Always be there as a parental figure whenever they need help in their worst moments. And, you know, also shaming her for the fact that she was having sex with her husband instead yeah. of, you know, taking care of her daughter when she was crying. And that just that whole interaction that's all dialogue based Nobody has to raise their voice. And it is this very uncomfortable moment that's just wordplay between both parties. And of, of course, you know, making the people that are justified in the way they feel, feel minuscule to the point that, oh, yeah, we can be convinced that today's going to be a good day, I think, as Patrick yeah. says, um, is a really fantastic example of, you know, having what maybe resembles sort of like a kitchen sink drama type of moment in a film such as this, but applying that horrifying context uh, in a way that is even more so disturbing than I think any of us were <laughs> expecting. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think that duo um, is such an interesting dynamic because, as you said, Patrick is very much like the extrovert. It's the you know, whoa and the big, crazy, wild guy. And then she's so normal. And that's what gives you the seed of doubt. It's like, well, if she's so normal, he can't be that bad. Maybe we're overreacting like that. And this is it. And and nothing she does feels out of order. Yeah, and that, that's it. So she's like the constant in the relationship. Yeah, she's the one that makes them feel like they're being silly or foolish. And yeah, the, the fact that you discover, you know, that this isn't the first family or will it be the last that they've done this to is just shows you that, you know, they, this is not a unique situation. And um, the scariest thing is they pretend to be more middle of the road than they are. You know, they are highly intelligent people who can read people's you know psychological states really well. And that's, yeah, they're, they're performing a play their entire lives. Everything they do is they're never themselves. They are just being someone else. And that, is chilling in itself because there's no sign of it. You know, there's no sign. Even with the transition that happens, you know, to that, somehow it's like it never happened. And they just reset the bar and that that's such an uncomfortable feeling to know that, that they can, yeah, there's no real reason for it other than that they are just doing, you know, committing to a pattern, completing it doing it all over again and that's it and just yeah it, it's yeah chilling that's it just i mean just how efficient they are what they do and have no slip-ups right you before you even have that reveal that you know you assume at a certain point that it's not their first family they've done this to and we'll elaborate on that in a minute um but it's been you know dozens of families over the course of the time that they've been doing these things but you know, the one of the scariest parts of the movie for me, and it kind of goes to what you were saying about, you know, they're so well rehearsed, they know the parts that they're meant to play, 
is when, you know, Luis cuts her finger, right? Yeah. And they want to go look at it. And Bjorn is like, oh, uh, Patrick, will you look at it? And Patrick just looks at him with this blank look on his face. And in that exact second, it's just, it's so disturbing to realize that like, yeah, he lied to the degree that he even forgot for a second yeah. that that's his role. Um, and that's probably, again, one of the scariest moments because he just gives him that blank look and he hasn't slipped up yet. And that's the most important part of why that's so effective is that throughout the entire movie, neither him or Karen have slipped up at all at that point. They know their lines to the T and they know exactly where they need to be, their stage directions essentially in every interaction. And in that moment, he is completely unprepared. But then it's only for a few seconds and then he snaps right back to it and comes up with a lie. Oh, well, uh, I'm not a doctor. I just said that because I want to make a good first impression. Yeah. And he doesn't even come up with that. Again, it shows how they cover for both of the, one another. He just goes, well, you know, I, I lied because I was nervous. And then, of course, his wife is right there to be like, well, yeah, he does that because he gets self-conscious and wants to make a good first impression, which I love that she picks up on mm. this new avenue of a lie without missing a beat where it's just like, oh, they slip up from time to time, but not a lot. <laughs> I think one of the most disarming ways to get at people you know, when they catch you out things is to be self-depreciated you know, in what you do and you know make it about you and how bad you are and how terrible you know it's like you know you know what i was a loser i'm scum for doing this but you know i had this terrible thing happen to me i'm so embarrassed and oh, i'm such a shit heel oh terrible mm. terrible <laughs> like that and making people feel sorry for you or pity you you know and it works yeah you know, with certain, with the kind of people that they're going for and yeah, that's the moment where they both, as you say, understand that and can come up with something that is self-depreciating and, and will do the job. I mean, honest to God, if you've ever been in an online argument before the age of Twitter, you know, that was a really good way to end an argument, to just sort of roll it back you know, and just say, you know, it's like, yeah, you're right. I, I, I was just being blah, blah, blah. I, you know, I'm crap at this, blah, blah, blah. And you'd be amazed how quickly people climb down from that. You know, it's like, I'm making myself sound like a psychopath now, aren't I? <laughs> it's like, it's like, but, but no, this is, I'm just saying there's a connection that I can see the connection of how you would use that as an important tool to diffuse a situation. And here, you know, it's done into a psycho psychopathic degree. But yeah, it's like, it's to clarify, I am not a psychopath. I'm just, saying, I'm just saying, I can see how that would be used by these psychopaths. I see. I should have unpacked a little bit more why this movie jumped out to you on Shutter. Yes, this is it. Yes. I am secretly the reason behind it. You found me out. But I think that the great follow-up to that interaction is, you know, that they're script essentially changes after that, right? Mm. And the fact that they can reference the fact that, you know, Bjorn and Luis kind of came at them with their worries mm. and their concerns. And then, you know, the next scene after that, I believe is the quarry scene. And on the ride to the quarry, you know, Patrick wants to put music on and he asks permission to do it, which I think, again, is his way of giving empowerment to Bjorn. He's saying, may I have permission to listen to my own radio? Yeah. You know, we know based on the ride uh, the night before when he was supposedly drunk, he had the radio cranked to the degree that Luis like quite literally shouts at him and swears at him to turn it the fuck down. Yeah. Um, and I love that, again, they know when they need to, you know, ease off of 
the ruse or, you know, the what is going on behind the curtain, if you will. Yeah. They know when they have to ease up because then what they want is then not going to have a reason to stick around for uh, as long as they do. Yeah, and to use it in isolation. Mm. You know, for Patrick to say it to Bjorn there, away from Louise, you know, yeah. brings shame into Bjorn's head, thinking, oh, Christ, you know, I'm now kind of embarrassed that she's got like that about it, you know, like that. Because that's yeah. it. It's, as we said, it's gaslighting, the idea, you know, mm-hmm. making you feel bad for something that, you know, you were quite valid in in uh, getting angry for. But, um, yeah, and dressing up as a, you know, you're our guest, blah, blah, blah. You, you should be you know, considerate and happy for what we're doing for you. And yeah, you know, th- these are our customs. And yeah, th- as we said before, this is just it. That's the plan. That's the way it works. And this is obviously why you know they go international, so to speak, and um, mm. take on different countries to find people from different countries. Well, that's the thing too that I really appreciated. Again, coming back to like just the way in which the gaslighting is scaled. Right. One of the the first two, I think, worrisome. Uh, you know, signs for Luis and Bjorn, right? Or Luis uh, mentions them to the couple where she says, you know, well, for starters, our daughter has to sleep on the floor in this small room. And then, you know, you guys took us, said it was going to be this nice restaurant and it's like some roadside bar or something. And I love that they included not only two, but I think there's one more example that's eluding me that, you know, is things that, again, could get lost in that translation. It's like, well, we thought it was customary for, you know, two children to sleep in the same room and we don't have this massive house. And, you know, sorry, we don't have these really fancy restaurants like you guys might have over in your country, right? They're able to hide behind that Mm. for a period of time that feels very natural, right? I think that if they, of course, did not have that other instance where it's like, well, your kid was in your room and your husband is drunk and naked, um, right? If they didn't have that, they might even be able to get away with even more, mm. right? I think that if it wasn't that one moment that they then could, you know, try to shame them so that way they would be like, well, you don't really want to keep hammering home how uncomfortable that made you because what were you doing mm. in our house type of a thing? Um, and it does make for just this really nefarious and uncomfortable situation uh, between the characters that you can't help but look, a- like you can't look away, but you want to yeah. so badly. I mean, and. It just makes every interaction, every decision by you know, Patrick and Karen to be very deliberate. And just you realize all of us that you know, every time that you know he's drunk, it's a not he's not not to the way that he's making it sound. Uh, that's why the bit in the car with the music is very much like you know he remembers it. Oh yeah, he remembers it because of course he wasn't drunk, you know, like that. And you know the decision to you know he'd seen them having sex that night and he knew how bad it would look and how to twist that you know as well but again they knew how they could get away with it they knew how they could make that them feel guilty and shut up about it and it's just evil on on such a level that is just you 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 worry in a way when you're watching it to go it's like how did you come to this (laughs) how do you think about the, the level of detailed uh, that goes into these these little plans, you know, the, and yeah, it, it, the fact that it all just comes together in that sense once you've got to the end of it, and you're just thinking, Christ, yeah, this all really matches up so well. I was also really appreciative of the fact that we didn't get a lot of genre 
moments that would have been, you know, more kind of along the lines of what you would assume would be the types of scares in yeah. a movie like this, right? I was really appreciative of the fact of the level of restraint to not go down that avenue. Um, I think probably the closest moment we get to that is when, you know, Bjorn goes out to investigate the door that's banging in their mm. garage or their, you know, uh, little cottage behind their house. And Abel comes up behind him and just opens his mouth and shows the fact he has no tongue, right? Which is a creepy moment, but the film is not inundated with moments like that, right? The film really does play to its strengths in a way that when you do get to that conclusion, I find that it is incredibly well-earned because Mm. we haven't had moments like that. We haven't had something that's undeniably a threat to their immediate situation. Um, but I guess we should get into the ending, right? I guess, yeah. how did you feel about the ending, you know, given how disturbing it is, how, you know, uh, Taftrup really does go for it in a way that, you know, not a lot of filmmakers do, I feel like. Um, how did that ending land for you? Did it feel earned? Did it feel necessary for the type of story that they're telling? You know, at first I wasn't sure, but I think as I came back to thinking of the earlier interactions and how they picked this couple and, you know, all that it made perfect sense because it's like they know they've got a bit of fire in them, but they know that ultimately they're not going to be the ones that they're not going to be Hollywood types who are going to fight back and save the day. Yeah. And you get that very depressing revelation during that scene, you know, when the scene with the daughter um, in the car. And at that point you, you just accept that in the same way that they accept that it's over. You know, that there's nothing more they can do. They're doomed. They're not going to get out of this situation. And it's bleak beyond words because film has often taught us to think, well, you know, there's always going to be something. Something is going to happen to make this work out and they can save the day in some way, shape or form, even if it isn't a complete victory. And no, no, it, it really does just take all hope away in that moment. It's like if they can do that, they are certainly aren't going to let them get out of this like that. And it, you know, there's no fight, there's no climactic battle. They 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 are just there, being shamed and humiliated, and just yeah, no evil monologues going on, nothing like that. It just it's routine. It's part of that cold, calculated routine that Patrick and Karen have, and. Yeah, it's just that's what makes it so effective. Is it just there's nothing about it that feels stagey or hammy or over the top. It's just cold, calculated glee. I mean, I learned a lot of this with when I was talking with David Bates and you know the voice of Agent Forty Seven uh, about Hitman, and of course, um, IO Interactive for Danish, and you know they have that sort mm-hmm. of very dark sense of humor to things and he mentioned about that you know that it's like they have this very bleak sense of humor and it's like so while i don't necessarily find it yeah you know, funny how the deaths occur in this thing it's like i can see why it comes from that and it always comes to mind when you see this and i think scandinavian horror in general just has this sort of um strange vibe to it where they, they are relentlessly bleak you know with a lot with a lot of them um, I think, I mean, this year alone, I think of The Innocence, which is Norwegian, I think, and it has Danish connections too. You know, that, that's, you know, that's chronicle, but, you know, Scandinavian in a lot of ways, but with children. And it's, it's so mean spirited at times. That it's like upsetting. You know, it's like, and yeah, it's nothing on this, but it still 
given the subject matter, really powerful and effective in what it does. And yet it's just that. I love that about it. It just doesn't care. It doesn't care for wrapping things up in a neat bow. It's not really even going for a twist at that point. And it's like, you already know what the, the big revelation is. You know what they're going for. You're just hoping that they don't get away with it. But not only do that, that means the key thing after this, after you know all is said and done, and they've dispatched you know Bjorn and Louise, that you get that last scene of them having gone somewhere else, and now having taken their daughter, you know, having basically you know spoilers, cut out her tongue, you know, and so that she can't talk. As we learned, the, the tongue disease thing was just the cover story, and they said that literally they cut the tongue out so they can't speak. It goes back to what you were saying about when. Bjorn sees the son outside trying to talk and he can't. And, you know, it's clear that he's trying to warn warn him in some way and he can't. And it's horrifying in itself. But, yeah, that last scene of just seeing her on a swing trying to be normal. And oh, it's just, yeah, that, that was worse. Worse somehow. <laughs> yeah. Somehow worse For than real. the actual tongue-cutting scene. And all the stuff that preceded this last scene it is just a really really impactful ending and i say again if you have children it's even worse because you are just suddenly just like i couldn't imagine what i don't want to ever feel that helpless about the fate of my children you know it's like to the point where you have to resign yourself to it before you die you know and yeah they are the things that really fill you with this horrible existential dread you know, when films do this sort of thing. Um, and it is ridiculous when, when you get out of it. it just, the effect goes in time because, you know, if you dwell on it too much, Christ, I'd never watch a film again, I think. But it's like... <laughs> but it, it's just... Yeah. But yeah, it just... It really does just hit you in a way that, you know, that I can come back to it and talk about it now and be a bit cooler about it than I was. At the time, it's just like, I just felt stunned, you know, stunned, which is, yeah, I like that about film. You know, it's what I love about horror, and I've found the older I've got, horror for me isn't about the things it used to be. You know, it really is about mortality and the things you can lose, you know, in that. That's why, you know, I've gone to bat for, you know, apocalyptic dramas that really sell the idea of a nuclear apocalypse uh, as a thing because and the effect it has on people um and then stuff like this where it is very much like okay this is what happens to the family unit in this situation it it really does just drill a nerve you know and it is awful 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 thing to have in the moment but i don't know you just appreciate it yeah, afterwards, you know, I know that's not going to be for everyone. I know, for instance, my wife would never, never want to watch something like this. <laughs> like that, and I, I totally understand why, because it's it just, she's of the mind that she would never stop thinking, never stop thinking about it. And it's like, you know, lucky, lucky us, you know, we, we've grown up on horror. And um, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is about the extent of it these days. If you're going to get to us, it's like it has to be. The heroine, not the marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, funny aside to build off of that, uh, recently 
I had uh, a phone call with my mom where she called and she was asking me, oh, I read an article that, you know, some Stephen King movie is popped up on Netflix. It's supposed to be like one of the best horror adaptations of that. And of course, she was talking about The Mist. Mm. And I had just recently watched it this past year. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations. I think you guys really like it, you know, because it's more like a play almost while they're in the store and whatnot than it is a conventional monster movie. You get to see how people are affected by this catastrophe. And then as soon as the words left my mouth, I was like, that's the worst movie you could ever recommend to somebody that has children. Why would I ever think? And then immediately had to walk back immediately and said, said, actually, that movie is going to make you never want to listen to any recommendation I've ever had for as long as I live. Um, But, you know, I think something that you said I want to touch upon that really stood out to me, and it's why I described the ending as being a parent's worst nightmare that's made palatable for people that don't have children is because he capt- the director captures the effect of these things on the parents and you know say what you will about the, the actual showing of severing a child's tongue or people being you know stoned to death and seeing the blunt force impact of that you know not, not to sound like a psychopath myself but it's the type of thing where you know you watch enough of these movies and of course that moment is disturbing of course it's upsetting but after a day or two for me when you watch a lot of movies that have you know, mm-hmm. gore or graphic content. It's the type of thing where, you know, okay, the shock value will pass me by after a certain period of time. Yeah. But what's going to stay with me is seeing the parents' reaction. That's what's going to stick with me for far longer than any scene that's just some type of, you know, practical work or gore or whatnot, you know, is not only having them have to watch their child's tongue be cut out, but seeing the interaction immediately after that where they're still stuck in the car and, you know, Luis is banging against the windows and screaming. And then within the span of five minutes, they are both shell shocked and they can't react. They don't emote much. Maybe they do some sobbing, but you know, it is a much quieter ending to a movie that has such a horrific act of violence uh, against several characters. You know, of course, obviously not only adults, but a child as well. And that's not to try to downplay what is shown on screen, but It's more so, I find, just capturing people in the worst moments of their life before their life ends. Mm. Um, You know, also the nefarious uh, fact of like, they didn't have to cut out the child's tongue in front of the parents, right? They did that to leave them with a moment that would make them more susceptible to whatever they tell them to do. Because at that moment, they're not like, they're not going to fight back after that. You've just done the worst thing you could ever do to a parent. So again, it makes you think more about, oh, sure. Part of this might be, you know, shock of getting to show that moment and being like, oh, that's heinous and disgusting. But more so, I find it to be even disturbing of focusing on just the way in which that affects people. Yeah. Because they don't show that moment and then immediately kill those characters, right? They make them stew in it because they're appreciative of the fact that now they can't do anything because they are so, you know, just basically, what is the point in fighting back now? Because you've lost the thing. Um, that you hold most dear. And also, like you kind of said, I'm appreciative of the fact that this is a film that does not romanticize a situation like this where this is going to be Bjorn's redemptive arc, essentially. Mm. All of a sudden, he's going to find, you know, I say this as the film, it seems to be making a commentary on uh, masculinity. And whether or not that be particular to men in general or men in, you know, their respective societies. But the fact that, you know, that line that Patrick says is like, well, I'm doing this to you basically because you let me. Yeah. Right. Which I don't think that's a leap to say they're making a commentary on masculinity and men's roles 
uh, in either relationships or just society in general. But I think overall, it is the film allowing us to stew in that moment and seeing how upsetting it is for somebody and how that's so core shattering um, is ultimately more impactful, I find, than any bit of gore or practical work that they can show. Uh, as you know, disturbing as that can be, you know the shock of anything I find when you watch enough of these tends to wane after a little while. But you know, capturing raw emotion, I find lingers with me personally a little bit longer. Mm. I mean, it's the finality of it, isn't it? It's the, the fact that they, as you say, it's manipulated in a way again that they are shown it when they don't need to be. The fact that, that you know, then she's taken away from them. And they know at this point what that means. They know mm. what the plan is from going forward. That they are that their door is going to basically be cuckooed, and, and yeah, those cuckooed, I suppose, um, by them. And the, eventually, her fate is going to be the same as their other, you know, their previous child, who you mm. know, we have mentioned. You know, that when he gets too much and seems like he's going to give everything away, they they drown him you know and, yeah. and get rid of him because they obviously think well now we've got the next child so we carry on and yeah so they know fully know well know what the fate of their child will be is misery for however long and then death and it's it just like the fact that they drag these things out just really elevates how depraved and cruel they are you know as people and it is yeah, no wonder, you know, John and Louise just lose hope at that end point because it's just you can't help but think about those things. Surely, you know, we're going. I, it was going through my head at the time of thinking it's over. That's why I thought, you know, once they cut the tongue, I was like, that that's symbolic. That's it. They're showing you right. cut the tongue out, take her away. It's over. You don't know where that guy is. You don't know who he is. You don't. You know this country. You've lost her. That's it. Mm. Yeah, and. Yeah, you would be stupefied by that. You absolutely would. And again, it just plays into that whole thing of what they're doing psychologically to these people. And yeah, it's masterful. It's damaging in a really effective way. So one thing before we wrap up about that ending that I didn't learn until after I watched the film was that, you know, obviously this was a very contentious movie to get made, Mm. right? Apparently they had a great deal of trouble with people keeping auditions for roles after they'd read the entire script. People that, of course, had some objections to the ending to the degree that, you know, the director and writer decided that he would try to rewrite it. And I think he said he wrote three alternate endings and none of them worked. And the one that was the closest to coming to work was supposed to be that it was not just that Patrick and Karen are in on it. It's that people in the surrounding area are all mm. doing the same thing. So it was supposed to be not only was it Bjorn and Luis who go into the quarry to get stoned, but other victims. And then, of course, the people that were doing this to them, which I'm curious, what is your take on that? If they had gone a route that honestly, when I read that, it seemed like it was almost reminiscent of um, The Invitation. Yeah. Karen Kusamau's film, yeah. right? The idea of at the very end, not only has the horror that's happened in that house happened there, but it's happened all over the greater area of where that movie takes place, um, which for The Invitation, I found to be effective. But for a film like this, that is a smaller scale film, a smaller cast. It's a lot more intimate of a yeah. film, even if they tackle similar kind of a thesis with how to approach horror. They are two 
films of varying sizes. Um, what would you think of an ending like that, that kind of expands the scope of things to that volume um, for the you know conclusion of this film? Yeah, I think that would devalue what they're going for here, just because the very intimate psychological warfare that goes on here, if you're replicating that with other people, I don't think it's quite the same. I, I, I can see how it could work and how that could be an effective ending. I just think that everything that works about this film is because of how personal it feels. And I think that would rob it of something. You know, and um I think the the assumption that there's some wider thing out there is there by the fact they had this third party that helps them out. Yeah, so it does. I think that's your greatest hint that there is more to it than this. By like that to be the extent of it, yeah, that nagging wonder. You know, a very basis of why they feel so hopeless towards the end is that we don't know who that guy is, but he knows them. So that means if a third person's in that doesn't seem to have any connection with them beyond that, what the fuck are they into? What what is all this about? You know, and. Yeah, it just leaves your mind fearing the worst and things beyond your comprehension. And so by leaving it that ambiguous, I think it works far better than just saying, oh, no, look, it's all sorts of people doing it. Because then it would be like, yeah, OK, we get it. It's just basically some sort of traffic. But then you couldn't do the ending as it was, because what's the point? If there's a whole group of people doing it, why are they doing it? I think then you have to start explaining something because like if one person's doing it, you know, a couple of people are doing it, I get it. But when you're saying that a whole bunch of people are doing the same thing, like, yeah, but what's the reason? Why are you doing it? What, what, what greater good is there for that? To have a community effort to murder a family, take on their child, murder that child, do it again. It's like, what does that achieve? Really nothing. Because I mean, that's why, you know, despite that being a theory of mine that, oh, they want to have, uh, to give that child a better life in their weird, twisted way. They don't because they discard them as soon as they find someone else. They use that child as bait for the next family. And that's it. That's all they use it for. So I, I would much prefer to think it was just these people being absolute psychopathic tossers and that's it you know that, that is the way it, it works best you're right though you know the invitation it works far better because of the way that story is structured but this nah that this this works by being as it is yeah and the invitation i find it works because there's more explained about what's going on yeah. right it, they're not keeping the audience in the dark in that film about why what is happening and the reason behind that mm. um also you know that film is kind of like making a commentary then on sort of just like the destructiveness on cult of personalities yeah. or various things like that, whether there's a religious element there or not. But with this film, as you said, if you include more people and you pull back the curtain and the scope is much larger, then it asks questions that ultimately I don't find would A, have it an interesting answer, quite frankly, based on how intimately intimate this one is and how strong it is based on that, right? Yeah. Things are more believable when there's less people involved, right? Because if any, like any conspiracy, uh, the more people that are involved, the harder it is to keep a lid on it, right? Um, and I think that with a film like this, there's no indication that that's the greater sort of thread that is being pulled, right? And it's, I find it to be far scarier when it's just like, oh, these are, you met the two wrong people 
to run into and to befriend. Yeah, and clearly they take on the homestead of different people. You know, they don't stay in the same place all the time, even though they, I think that's the place they bring most people to. But clearly they try and move around with some stuff. So, yeah, it would be odd. It would be very odd. And then why would they have to store everything at their house if there was some sort of great collective? You know, it just, yeah, it, it's... I. Obviously, some of these aspects would be changed if you changed that. But yeah, no, it, it works absolutely fine as it is. One last scene I have to mention before I wrap up, I promise it's the last, is the scene when Bjorn goes into the cottage and he goes into that attic room mm. and he sees all the pictures of all the other families yeah. that they've done this to. And again, that's a fantastic moment of not only, you know, of course, you get to see you aren't shown in detail every photo, but you're shown enough that you get the sense of, okay, they've done this to dozens, if not multiple dozens families. And, you know, just seeing his reaction and just how his face changes over time. Mm. And the longer he stares at it, the more he understands. And it just kind of, if in my mind, that seals his fate, essentially, because he knows and the audience knows there's nothing special about this person that he's going to be the link that breaks this cycle. Right. And I find that that moment is so key. And especially also, you know, the fact that before that he see, or I believe right after that, he sees Abel's body in the pool. Right. And, you know, he doesn't change that much other than being scared. It's still internalized. He doesn't, you know, have this arc where he's got this, you know, this newfound machismo of I have to get my family out. It's more just, okay, we have to get out because yeah. something is wrong, right? You don't see him get this fire in his belly almost where now he's going to, you know, become the savior. Mm. Um, and for me, you know, from that moment, I was like, well, that's their fate sealed. Yeah. Because if that doesn't kick off this, you know, the romanticized idea of like, I'm going to save the day, nothing will no. at that point. And um, yeah, I find that, for a film that has as dark and disgusting of an ending as this does, overall, though, the film is consistent with what is presented of characters. Yeah. If you know Whatever minor qualms I have about that third act being a little more dragged out than I think it needs to be, at the same time, I find that the depiction of the characters and their arcs are about as natural as they could be mm. for a film such as this. There's, I can't find a fault with the way in which characters are portrayed and just... You know, they're them sealing their own fates, essentially, um, based on just what we know about them. Exactly. Um, And that's a very difficult thing to do, as we've seen, because there's definitely a lot of films that have somewhat of a similar premise that all of a sudden somebody turns into a superhero. And it's refreshing to get a film such as this, where that is certainly not the direction that uh, the director chooses to take. No, it all comes back to what you said, you know, that first interaction with the chair. uh, That is the moment where fate is sealed, effectively, because they are chosen you know they they are gauged as being potential suitors for this sick game they're playing and unlike yeah you know, it's not happenstance that you know people stumble into some sort of horrific situation this is they were chosen everything after that is a stage play that's it you know they are basically just being led along not knowing what the script is but being scripted all the same and yeah, that's it. And that's why it works so well all throughout is that there's nothing about it that feels false because, you know, funnily enough, it is false. Yeah, it is, you know, purposefully false throughout. Yeah, they are being led in a certain way, every step of the way, manipulated to react and to push them into. The whole thing is a big test. 
that's the way you got to see it. It's like the whole thing is them being tested as to how much they can get away with. And then it makes you start thinking about like, well, how many people did they just murder? Straight up murder early on because like, no, we're not going to get away with doing all this. And the fact that they get away with, you know, they get off on the idea of just pushing, you know, and trying to push these social boundaries more and more is far more disturbing and fascinating than just, oh, this is, these are people who murder people and take their children. Yeah, it's like, it adds such a intriguing element to it. Yeah, because the reality is, is that as soon as they get them in the house, they could do whatever they want. Yeah. But they drag this out because it is a game, right? It's the predator playing with its prey before it strikes. Um, and I find that this film takes something that, as you said at the top of the episode, right? There's a lot of familiar pieces here, but it's the way in which they are constructed mm -hmm. and placed against one another that makes Speak No Evil definitely a standout of uh, Shudder. And, you know, I would say it's one of their best of the year so far, as far as their exclusives go. Um, this is a film that I think sticks with me, not just because of the ending, which, you know, we both agreed is, you know, earned mm. in a way that other films or lesser films maybe would do as being the main drive of them or, yeah. you know, that being like their big aha moment. Whereas in this, I found it's incredibly earned. And, you know, by that point in the film, it's like, well, yeah, this is the natural conclusion to this. And I don't know. I find that to be a rarity sometimes yeah. with films that go as hard as this one does. How often do we say, oh, well, that was earned or that would be the natural conclusion. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you putting this one on my radar because <laughs> this was certainly, certainly a film that, um, you know, while I kid, it ruined my Sunday. Uh, it's certainly a film that will stick with me for, you know, reasons that I can appreciate, right? I think that that is a tell of an effective filmmaker that's able to have an ending that is as memorable and as disturbing as this, but it feels like it's handled in the right way, you know, as far as a film about cutting out children's tongues and kidnapping them could, uh, could do. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, this was a pleasure as always. I always appreciate the chance of picking your brain about film as much as I do with games. Uh, and I want to give you the chance to plug your Twitter so that people can follow uh, you for not only your, you know, recommendations on movies, but also, of course, all of your articles that you do for a variety of websites. Yeah, and that is at Nesco, which is N-E-Z-Z-K-O. Yeah, as Jay says, do articles for places like Dread XP, you know, and um, obviously do the Safe Room podcast with Jay, uh, where we talk about horror video games. And yeah, you know, I'm on Letterboxd on Nesco be down as well, but if, if you want to see what horror movies I'm watching or, or talking about any given word, you know, so yeah, it's... um. Always great to talk to you about anything, I think, because the outcome is usually the same. I think I have a few basic points to talk about and then and then I get into it and then the way we converse ends up being like, oh, and then I remember this and then that, 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 that. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's um, great to do. You know, it's like, it, I mean, in this case, it very much feels like therapy. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which we could probably both use a dose of after this one. Yes, uh, and now I'll probably have to go on a campaign to convince people I'm not a secret psychopath as well. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, it's um, yeah, always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.